0: Hello, and welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. If you enjoy this conversation, there are a few different ways you can support us. You can buy a book from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com, including the title discussed in this episode, a link to which you'll find in the show notes. There, you'll also find our Year of Reading subscription, as well as Shakespeare and Company totes, apparel, mugs and other gifts, all shipped from Paris to wherever you are in the world. You can also become a friend of Shakespeare and Company, a programme we set up to get the bookshop through this difficult year. Membership gets you access to exclusively produced content throughout 2021, as well as other treats depending on the tier you choose. Contributors so far include Molly Crabapple, Ayshan Hutchinson, Olivia Lang, Deborah Levy, Katika Nair, Clemence Poésy, Natalie Portman and George Saunders. You can find out more on friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com. Finally, you can rate this podcast wherever you listen, And if you have time, leave a review. It can really help spread the word. I'll be back at the end. Until then, thank you for listening and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Pragya Agarwal, who in the very first pages of Motherhood, flags up how tricky it's going to be for interviewers like myself to describe her new book. Is it memoir, autofiction, a manifesto or some form of political writing, she asks? All of the above and none, she answers. And yet, as one reads on, it becomes clear that this hard-to-pin-down form could be the best, indeed the only, means for truly getting to grips with its equally hard-to-pin-down subject matter. For what makes a mother? We probably all think we know that we all have some implicit understanding of the concept and experience of motherhood, and yet it's likely that much of this understanding has been shaped by our sex, our gender, our skin colour, our class, our economic situation, and a whole host of other accidents of birth not to mention the overarching patriarchal structure of most societies. Pragya Agarwal's Motherhood is a deeply compelling, urgent investigation into all of these factors, written with the insight and knowledge of a scientist, the literary flair of a novelist, and the clear mind of hard-won experience. Pragya, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast.
1: Thank you so much. Such an honor to be here.
0: It's such a pleasure to, um, to have you here. Now, in the introduction, I talked about the, um, the strange format of the book. Um, and it's, you know, I'm not going to ask you, as you kind of resist in the introduction, to pin it down or to describe it. But I am curious about how this sort of hybrid format evolved. Like how, was it in the, the conception of the book? Did you know that it had to be sort of many stranded? Was it in the research or did it come out perhaps in the writing?
1: Yeah, I suppose it just came out of me, myself, because I find mm-hmm. it very hard to pin myself down in a box. And I really resist all these boundaries and limits and these labels, I suppose. And um, I was very keen to write about the mothering experience from a scientific, historical, cultural analysis. But I also knew that if I didn't bring my lens into it, it'll be very hard for me to write it, because I have to make clear why I'm writing, what I'm writing, and what mm-hmm. my lens is. And um, because motherhood is such an intimate experience, and one that I've gone through. And I'm also a woman, but I'm also a cis heterosexual woman. So I had to bring that lens and that projection into it. Um, I do did want to talk about womanhood and motherhood from a very intersectional perspective, because I wanted to resist these notions that it's a very homogenized, homogenous experience, mm-hmm. which has centred white middle-class women, an idealized kind of a norm for a very long time. And I wanted to resist that. I wanted to break that, disrupt that in some way. But I didn't also want to be the voice of many other people who I don't represent the communities. I wanted to say, yes, look, we need to talk about these other people, the other communities who are not represented in this discourse, who are often on the fringes, who are marginalized, and show that motherhood or womanhood also affect people who are not part of the discourse. But I had to say, I can only talk for about it from my experience and show this is how it shaped my life. This is how mm. I think about it. And I can use that to draw on the scientific and historical and cultural and analysis. So I suppose it kind of emerged as I was writing and, and through that as well that they were thinking. Mm.
0: That that idea of a of a lens mm-hmm. seems particularly crucial here because obviously when we generally think about science, we think of sort of like something which in in some way is um is removed from this lens, separated from it. Although I think we'll come later to talk about how, particularly in the case of motherhood and womanhood and fertility, that is not um not always the case, and very often very often not the case. But it also became very clear to me when reading. That in fact, even though the book is called Motherhood, in a way, it's about sort of motherhoods. Like you're, you're very resistant to the idea that there could be one overarching description of of a mother, as if like in going through, as if all the people who go through this experience in some way, yeah, become a sort of homogeneous mass. Which, in a sense, when we, when we. Describe it like that. It seems obvious. Of course, you know everybody is different, and everybody's experience of motherhood is going to be different. And yet, the way in which society often approaches it is from the completely opposite perspective: is to kind of to, to, to sort of homogenize it. What do you think lies behind that urge of society to to sort of to that a society that accepts every person is unique and yet wants to of concretize and homogenize motherhood?
1: It's, it's an easy thing to do. And it's easier, mm-hmm. but also lazier. Because when we look at information that we have bombarded it from all sides, we tend to box things into categories. We tend to put things into labels and boxes and say, okay, this slot's here and that slot's here. And once we name it and we label it, then we understand it. And then it's easy to do. And then every time we see somebody who resembles that, we put them quickly into that box. And that's a way way we kind of process information because we can't process information um, on a very kind of rational, logical manner. But that's also how stereotypes are formed. And that's how homogenization takes place. And so society does this to everybody, like even people of color or BME, the label, the BAME that's used Mm -hmm. here. And anything that's not the norm is just put in a box as well. And motherhood for a long time, although it's idealized, and I talk about it in the book, and it's kind of like created as a destiny for all women, um, but it's not something that's uh nourish uh, that's kind of cherished in in our society mm. that's that's actually valued in our society. It's not the norm because women are not the norm women mm. are and still not the norm so so I suppose that's an easy way to do and then when we start thinking about motherhood as a homogenized thing, we often think of only the people whose stories we hear. And who narratives we hear in the mainstream media, mm-hmm. who have the voice, who have, who are still within these categories, there are hierarchies. Within these categories, there are norms. Um, mm-hmm. and some people are more closer to the norm and some people are on the fringes and the margins who are, whose stories we don't hear, which means that within motherhood, actually some people are prioritized more than others. And I wanted to show that actually in homogenizing, we are creating these outliers. We are, Uh, diminishing experiences of some people and we are marginalizing them even further because they're not even center in this discourse where they are supposed to be.
0: And that seems to be in a way the sort of the particularly pernicious thing about this kind of homogenized idea of motherhood in that I suspect with most of these you know when, when an idea is homogenized like that most people will not fully identify with it and you know, as you said, like different people, depending on how close they feel or how close they are to that that sort of idealized, homogenized thing, will feel uh, more and more separate from it, and that will bring with it ideas of of feelings, I suppose suppose of guilt and mm. sort of shame and sort of if if this is what it is to be an ideal mother, you know, my deviation from it is something which is quite difficult to to process, and the more you deviate from it, so let's say um the the view of the sort of idealized mother is often presented as often a white woman it's often yeah. uh, uh comfortably off sort of middle-class mm-hmm. person if you don't fit those boxes as well then the the feelings of kind of a failure of shame yeah. or of guilt could be even more exaggerated
1: yeah absolutely i mean we see that in all the cases i discuss how even pregnant bodies. There is an idealized norm of what we've seen in media and what kind of bodies are represented as this idealized, where they don't take up too much space, where they are a certain way. And so people, especially bodies of color, especially bodies that are not these white, slender bodies, and which are taking up space, which are different from the idealized norm can feel like, oh, actually, there must be something wrong with me. I'm not mm-hmm. represented. And that's the thing about representation in any domain, not just womanhood or motherhood, that it, it, it uh, isolates some people, that mm-hmm. it may marginalizes them even further than they are. And they already are, but then when they are not seen as the idealized norm, they internalize this these things. Mm-hmm. And when internalize, we internalize this guilt and this pressure, of not being the norm, that we are not valued, that we are not represented, that we are not seen. And we always always try and feel like we are alone. We try start feeling that, that we must be alone. Any mm-hmm. failure on my part is my failure alone. Any deviation mm-hmm. from the norm is my failure alone. And so I need to carry this guilt and this shame of being different from the mm-hmm. norm. And I think that's why it's so important to hear the stories across a spectrum not just a particular kind of story. And we're still resistant to that because we we have whiteness as the norm in our society. Mm -hmm. We still center some uh, uh, stories and narratives more than others. We know that within the publishing industry, there's a huge resistance to different kind of stories as well. Mm -hmm. So, I I mean, at every stage of womanhood, at every stage of motherhood, there is an idealized sort of norm that has been established due to historic legacy, due to how our society's systemic and structural inequities work. So, Mm -hmm. yes, anybody who's not that, different will internalize that and we internalize that that in form of stereotype threat, we internalize that in form of um shame and guilt and all these pressures and mm. like a weight that we carry with us.
0: Is is that do you think what lies at the root? If I, I think if if um if we were to take your book and put it into one of those, you know, those kind of word cloud mm-hmm. generators six I think one of the things one of the words that would probably show up the most is the word paradox. Um, like there seem to be a discussion of motherhood, the way, whether it be, well, motherhood, whether it be fertility, what whether it be sexuality or things like that, you seem to keep coming back to this idea of paradox, in fact. And do you think this sort of, this discussion we've had about that sort of, that idealized view of motherhood and the separation uh, probably most women feel from it, is at the root of, of this sort of production of paradoxes,
1: yeah, I've I reflected on that a little bit, and I, I felt like my life has been—I um, felt like when I was reflecting about my life and thinking about the decisions I'm making, there has been a kind of inherent strange paradoxes in a way, in a lot of ways as well. But yes, mm. I mean, when I talk about. Uh, womanhood, um, when I talk about menstruation and periods, for instance, that stepping into having your first period is stepping into womanhood where women Mm -hmm. become more visible, but also invisible at the same time. And there's that strange paradox as well, where you are supposed to become a woman and you're going towards a path that is destined for you, like becoming a mother. But at the same time that the whole way that menstruation is stigmatized and there is still carries shame is a strange mm-hmm. paradox in it itself because the process is is idolized, but it's also stigmatized and it carries a sh- lot of shame in, in, in different cultures and different societies, and it's not valued. Um, the the kind of womanhood or motherhood is idolized and put on a pedestal, but women's sexuality is, is stigmatized. Mm-hmm. So the what leads to motherhood is actually not given true due credit, and that it's there's a lot of shame associated with that. And we don't talk about that. And, and so there's also always this inherent paradox, in there is something that's idealized, but still women's bodies carry a lot of shame. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of shame and stigma associated with normal bodily functions. And, and so it's almost like being torn into directions. And I also wanted to think about ambivalence in this, about how much, how little space ambivalence is given in in women's lives. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about my own life. You have this binary thing set up for you that either this path or that path, either you want to be a mother or not be a mother. And one is the norm and one is not the norm.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: there is no space given to kind of this ambivalence. You're not supposed to be ambivalent. You're not su- allowed to be ambivalent. And I suppose that was also something that I was thinking about while writing the book.
0: Mm. What I, I find this this idea fascinating about the um, this sort of this the reaction to sort of bodily functions. Mm. Um, one of the things in the book which really struck me, um, I suppose, because I, I, I'd never considered this uh, going back. So far before was when you talk about the way that um, our minds are formatted to um to consider the um the fertilization process and you, you talk about the uh, the scene at the opening of that film from the what, the late eighties <laughs> I think it is uh, a yeah. he's talking um and which I realized when when you wrote that when I read that that sort of oh my goodness. That image was definitely something. I saw that as like a 10 year old boy. And I'm I'm sure that was the first and probably a defining representation (laughs) of the fertilization process. Me too, I I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, me too,
1: I think. Yeah.
0: If our listeners haven't heard this, so this is well, maybe you could describe. No, no, <laughs> I will same. let
1: you describe it. Go ahead. Please.
0: Well, it's essentially kind of a, a race of, you know, you're yeah. saying it's an animation, but a quite a realistic animation or realistic looking of of like s- sperm racing towards the egg, <laughs> and they're chatting to each other, and and it's clearly a sort of a, an expeditionary um, uh, moment. And yeah. whereas the the egg. Is lying there, sort of very passive and very sort of receptive, and you know, and it's clearly, I mean, you describe it as you know, the sperm as a knight in shining armor, and the egg as a damsel in distress, or like the the process of fertilization as kind of an odyssey, a hero mm. on an adventure, and yeah, and it. it whereas we know from the science that this it's much more complicated than that in fact the you know both the sperm and the egg are very active in mm. the process of fertilization and yet our sort of our conceptualization of it is sh- still shaped along these very um, patriarchal lines
1: yeah absolutely the way that's even now i mean i looked at some of the um, uh, biology textbooks and medical textbooks that it's so gendered. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, male the, the male body is set up as the standard. And a lot of the female bodies, the body parts are named according to that. So the male body will have the perineum and the female body will have female perineum. So it's mm-hmm. still the maleness mm-hmm. is the norm in that. And we don't really... And yes, the egg is seen as this kind of passive... Um, with no role in it. And it's always the words that I use as a ser- sperm is fertilizing the egg rather than the fertilization mm. is taking place. So mm. the language is not in isolation. Language is constructed out of society, but it also reinforces the existing gendered roles and gender inequalities in our society. And that is something that's really important to consider, not just at the a notion of sexual education and biology textbook but it is very important at that stage because you know children are forming these notions from a young age and that's how you start thinking of us that I have to be rescued by somebody or I have to lie there waiting and my body is just there to lie waiting for somebody to come and rescue me or to do this and and this kind of gender language but also bias language carries on through reproduction in terms of how geriatric mothers are called or inhospitable mm-hmm. cervix and incompetent cervix and and all those kind of la- words that are used which create shame around women's bodies or that women's bodies are something that there's something broken or faulty with them either they're mm-hmm. passive and just waiting for a man to come and rescue or there's something broken or faulty with them and I think we really need to address language in medical textbooks and biology textbooks and just in textbooks generally because it really shapes our view of the society and our view of the self, ourselves mm-hmm. as well.
0: And I, I suppose this language, I guess, is kind of, it has been shaped and it's kind of been inherited from previous generations. And so I guess it's sort of, uh, a lot of it has been, even if it necessarily hasn't been sort of actively um sort of uh misleading it's sort of if if it's not sort of if it's not sort of actively changed if we don't if we don't sort of try and try and unpick this then we just kind of these ideas will yeah we'll we'll just kind of become Mm -hmm. part of our knowledge without um without us having to sort of uh without us really really questioning it um one one thing you talk about is the sort of and I, i suspect these two things are connected is sort of how little we know our own bodies Uh, would, would you would you say that the two are related that we sort of we don't get to sort of um to to understand that this this language is wrong and the way these things are talked about is is incorrect or at least certainly very loaded in a sort of patriarchal fashion because we are unfamiliar with these kind of these vessels that we we inhabit
1: yeah, I think so. I think these are related because there is it is gendered. And if, mm-hmm. if women's bodies are not considered important, if women's sexuality is not considered important, young girls or women are not taught about it. Even now I see with my five-year-old t- twins and the school, there's so much resistance to teach them the real bi- body parts, the biological mm-hmm. body parts. They They've given some kind of euphemistic names and people are uh-huh. awkward and uncomfortable around body parts and labeling them. But unless you actually start knowing your body or understanding what things do, how will you grow up with a strong sense of self? And that is what I really believe in. So I suppose, first of all, we have to shed some of that discomfort around talking Mm -hmm. about these things, because I suppose it's the way that we were brought up and we didn't talk about it openly. Mm. There is always in our society around discomfort around women's sexuality, as I say, uh-huh. or women, especially around sexuality. And and we know that there, there's a, this kind of gendered language also leads to gender based violence in schools. Mm. And, and, and we are hearing in the UK how it's a huge problem at the moment. Ofsted has mm-hmm. just done a big survey and it's not a new thing. It's been happening for a while. Um, yeah. So I think, The more we know, the more better we understand, the better we're able to talk about it. And that's why I think that leads to that kind of ignorance in medical domain as well, where women don't feel comfortable asking questions about their own bodies. So when we know that in medical domain, women face a lot of bias and prejudice and they, they, they are supposed to stand up for themselves, but they Mm -hmm. don't have the right vocabulary. They don't feel comfortable or confident to ask questions, to even garner that gather this information that they're not given this information
0: Mm. as well.
1: Sometimes. So, why are we left ignorant about our own bodies? Yeah. Is the big question, I
0: think. Have you noticed a difference? Uh, because you talk in the book about um, the uh, sex education that you received at school. Um, obviously, that was uh, that was in um, in India, um, and you have a your your eldest daughter. Um, I'm guessing is around in her early twenties now, or something yes, like yes, that. Yeah, yes. and so you mentioned the five year old twins. Mm. Like, have you noticed a kind of qualitative difference or between the sort of the sex education that you know that you received that your eldest daughter received that the the twins are receiving or oh. do you seeing the same kind of patterns repeated and the same mistakes kind of uh, entrenched
1: I th- I think yes we moved forward. Um, I mm. didn't receive any sex education at right. all. We didn't have any. We just. I mean, I know about it because I studied biology at school, which is equivalent to A level there. So I I knew I. But people I worry about people who didn't even have biology in school, mm. you know, at at that level because they would have not received any sex education and. When I was growing up, we didn't have access easy access to internet or to magazines mm, or course, other kind yeah. of groups and forums so how and social media. So how I we didn't have any access to all this information. Now I think things changed and with my eldest daughter, yes, they had some cursory sex education, but it was very, very limited. It wasn't much. It was only it was done also in a very kind of a gendered manner. So the boys Mm. were taken to a different part of the school and class and girls were taken to a different part of the class and they were given this education. Interesting. And yeah, it was really, really bizarre about the way they did it. But Mm. now, I mean, I don't know, my twins are still uh, young. I want them to be comfortable. I talk to them very openly about things, but I know that some parents in the playground are uncomfortable if they Uh use the right names for body parts. Um, But I hope things have changed, but actually speaking to some of the students of biology or looking at biology textbooks or talking to people who are teaching sex education, I find that we still carry these kind of gendered Mm -hmm. messages. And I don't think it's changed that much. It's given very limited information. Um, Yeah, there needs to be a strong and I don't know how it is in France, but there Mm -hmm. needs to be a really big change about how we are talking about this. Yeah.
0: I must yeah. admit I don't know how it is in France I I'm astonished to to hear that uh, even for your your eldest daughter um who would have received sex education about in the UK about 20 years after I did like because my experience was very much um well it was it was a church of england school uh, yeah. first of all um and uh, our teacher who you know lovely guy but I remember he began the the class with saying sex is <laughs> between a man and a woman Who are married, and so that was immediately the sort of (laughs) so normative, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, as you said, like I remember the the boys were taken out, and we were given a kind of a description. I can't even remember, but I I remember certainly when I actually discovered later what was involved, being astonished at how different it was compared to the (laughs) the impression I'd taken from class. And then the girls, yeah, were later, you know, they they were all given sanitary towels but like mm. it really s- seems surprising to me that even even for your, your your eldest daughter that the sort of the boys were not
1: yeah.
0: included in the the education about uh about women's uh, biology yeah. it's yeah. it seems um yeah that's, that's that's striking i wonder if that has changed since then or not but...
1: yeah i was cho- i was trying to find that out recently and i found that mm-hmm. actually um maybe men, boys have more information, but they get, they, there's also a problem because there, a lot of information that boys get is through internet and course, through yeah. pornographic images mm-hmm. or through porn and the use of porn. And that is not their, what their experience should be. They should get real factual information mm-hmm. about women's bodies, about real women bodies, not these idealized bodies. And I think that mm-hmm. is also a problem in not including boys in in uh, in this mm-hmm. in this way, because they carry this this forward, and it also lays down this kind of very gendered divide in who should know what. This is what mm-hmm. you're supposed to know, and this is not what you're supposed to know. And I know people are talking more about consent now, but even at that stage, I don't think boys know much about why why some things happen, how women feel, or how what things they grow through. And even men don't know much about menopause, for instance, and mm-hmm. we still are talking about it more openly, but even there's this awkward and discomfort around menopause and talking about menopause and what happens and what changes a woman's body goes through. You know? Mm.
0: It's again it comes back to that 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 paradox in a way that yeah. sort of our societies in so many ways are so sexualized. Yeah. And yet there is there's still a lot to do with sex and to do with fertility and to do with biology yeah. which is so utterly taboo um and it's 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 so it's so strange to think because in the end the 21st century you would you would hope that at least with the sort of the the liberation that came since you know since the 60s or whatever that that would have been sort of a sort of a parallel liberation of the sort of the uh, lifting of the taboos in a way. Um, but it's funny, I was talking with um, the writer Olivia Lang last week about her new book, um, Everybody. And this one thing that she talks about in there is, in fact, how the sort of the sexual liberation of the 1960s, in a sense, was a very sort of, it had a lot to do basically with men getting their kicks yeah. and, uh, and sort of very little to do with... Um, Women with, being with
1: liberated. Of, uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. 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 Um, one thing that is very sort of, uh, apparent in your book is you've mentioned it a few times already is this sort of, um, determination to, uh, to, to see the experience of mothering, of fertility, of, of womanhood generally from, uh, an intersectional, um, perspective. Um, so whether that be race, whether that be class, whether that be, uh gender or related to gender or related to 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 sexuality um and yet you're also very conscious in your um in the way that you write to be very clear about the sort of position you're writing from Uh, was that quite a a, sort of a difficult thing for you to balance in the book as a uh heterosexual cis woman to sort of to, to, to write about the experience without being, to write about your experience without being too prescriptive about uh, how the experience might be for, for trans or non binary people, for example.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was re- quite tricky for me because I, I, I dwelled on it a lot. I thought about it quite a lot. I read a lot of material around it. I tried to find as many examples and scientific studies around different kinds of um, experiences. Um, That is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about it from my lens and make that position very clear that this is this is the terminology I'm using because Mm -hmm. I'm writing from my experience. I cannot speak for other people because I don't want to be tokenistic and performative. I should Mm -hmm. create space for other people, which is what I'm trying to do through this book so that we can have a conversation which is intersectional and highlight that Yes, this experience will be different for other people, for other communities, people who identify as non-binary or people who are trans men or trans women and the gender dysphoria that some of them face. I spoke to quite a few, but I didn't want to include there because, again, I'm not the right person to talk about mm-hmm. their experience, because if I take on that space, then they are, their space is taken away, basically, to talk mm-hmm. about their experience. So there are some good books coming out recently about queer women going through mm-hmm. IVF and there's somebody who's written a fantastic book I think in the US about the non-binary parenthood as well which mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to read. I try to find a lot of scientific studies again there is a dearth of scientific studies related mm-hmm. to trans experience and and non-binary experience so I try to dig in as much as possible into legal documents I include cases and case studies which are in the public domain and to highlight this that actually look, we can talk about motherhood. But first of all, motherhood and mothering is a very different experience. Secondly, Mm -hmm. it's not a homogeneous experience. It's about the labels we assign. It's about our position in society that also determines the kind of choices we are able to make and we are allowed to make. So we might Mm -hmm. say everybody has a choice to make, but no, look, it's not possible for everybody to make the same choices because we don't even have the freedom to make the same choices sometimes because we don't have the position to make the choices. And I think it's sometimes I find that people are so caught up in their bubble that they think Mm. because we are free, everybody is free or because we are liberated or we have this choice, everybody has the choice. And I think that's such a blinkered view. So yes, Mm. it was tricky for me, but that's why I wanted to make my position absolutely clear that this is an inclusive intersectional book I am talking about a broad spectrum of womanhood and motherhood, but it is mm. also through my lens as a head woman. Mm.
0: It it I think that there's there's two things you said there, which I think um are very important. And very important in the book, um, which I'd which I'd like to just unpick a little bit. The first is that thing about talking from experience. Um and it, it's one thing that really struck me. I think it if I remember rightly, it's in the um the the chapter um, when you talk about the uh, experience of surrogacy and you say something along the lines of um everybody you know everybody has everybody has a view but there's so few people have actually experienced it and that seems in a way to apply to you know if we for example if we talk about abortion and maybe this is a very um sort of cliche sort of uh Way to represent it, but you think of sort of the debate in the in the yeah. United states yeah. where where men a lot of kind of middle aged <laughs> okay. men are very vocal on the on the subject of abortion and in fact often seem to to dominate a lot of the a lot of the discussion and the point you make is just, i mean it it seems so straightforward, but it' sort of it struck me as one that's so rarely expressed is that you can't know what it's like you can't you can't know what the question about whether you should terminate a pregnancy is like, or whether you, you know, what the experience of IVF is like, or what the experience of surrogacy is like, or or any of these things until you have lived it. And it really, it really did make me think, yeah, we are often so forthcoming with our opinions. And we could probably do with pausing to hear from people who have been in positions where they have, had to make the choice
1: yes absolutely it's it's perfect you say it perfectly because yes i mean we ignore these lived experiences sometimes and people take up space who have who are the most vocal who have the power who have the privilege to have, have a platform to talk about some of these issues but how can we talk about them how can we understand the nuances of these choices Unless we know what it is to be like in that position, mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean the whole debate around abortion. Yes, the decisions are made about women's body, women's fertility, reproduction, cho- reproductive choices by men who mm-hmm. are not going to experience that because they are not their bodies are not the same, or they're not going to experience the same things ever. But they make these decisions because we still some a lot of this. These choices are rooted in a patriarchal construct. Mm-hmm. It is very. It is based in a racialized hierarchy. It is based in a patriarchal construct. And that determines a lot of these choices that are on offer to us um, as women. And, and I think, yes, I mean, I talk about surrogacy because it's such a polarized discourse and polarized debate. But often, again, we don't think about women's choices in it we don't Mm -hmm. think about the women who are making the choices we don't hear and people who are most vocal have never had to make these choices Mm -hmm. either to be a surrogate or to be an intended parent through surrogacy and I think yes as you say we should pause and we should bring in more lived experiences and that is Mm -hmm. why it's so important to hear these diverse stories and these diverse narratives and create space for them. Mm -hmm.
0: One of the um, things that I found most sort of informative. About the book, among many, many, many informative things, was the the uh, perspective you have on uh, being a woman of color, um, being a mother, both in the UK but also uh, in India, uh, because obviously uh, the the experience of being uh, in you know quotes unquote ethnic minority in in the UK and all of the the. Uh, Sort of the questions and uh, and and issues that, that that come with that, but then also coming from a a culture which has a very particular view and quite removed in certain respects from the UK of of motherhood and the and the role of women um, within society generally. Did you find it um, sort of having sort of had your life between the two countries? Did you find it a sort of a, an interesting experience personally to sort of to compare and contrast and to sort of to to sort of essentially relive your experiences as as a woman and, and as a mother in in both British and Indian societies?
1: Yeah, I think I always feel like I have feet in two worlds you know i mm-hmm. don't belong in either of them completely and i do belong in both as well which yeah. is such a lovely thing to feel but i yes i think that is why maybe perhaps because i've been there and i grew up there and then i went back there and for five six months we lived there while uh, we brought our twins back home and my first daughter was born there and and had a very difficult pregnancy and experience and then i've been here I suppose I reflect a lot on my privileges, quite a lot, and mm-hmm. that is why intersectionality is so much so important for me. And to reflect on what happens outside these bubbles that we create for us, and what happens when we look at a global perspective of these things, and how women's position is not the same in in different mm-hmm. parts of the world, how our choices and our position is shaped by our social and cultural and environmental context, but the fact that I that all of us have privileges that we don't reflect on that mm-hmm. even as a woman of color i have certain privileges and that was apparent when i go back to india now because i have education i live here so i i come from there i have a white husband which is kind of a sign of a privilege there i mm-hmm. I, I i'm perceived to have more be more financially um, successful because mm-hmm. there is still the perception that people who live in england or america are richer in india right. because of that but also in india there there is a the very stratified society in terms of socioeconomic structure so i have all those mm-hmm. privileges so i think that is why i take a more i try and take a more nuanced view on a lot of these things because i am i'm always reflecting on not just the biases or prejudices I face, but also the opportunities that my privileges give to me and how Mm -hmm. that shapes people's perceptions of me and my status in society. And if that is the Mm -hmm. case, if we all did that, if we all reflected on our privileges, then I suppose we could take a more nuanced view on all these debates, which become so polarised as well, Mm -hmm. about the fact that, yes, I'm coming from my position of privilege, but what if this other person doesn't have these privileges? So it's always a balance between the biases we face and our privileges because of our multiple identities. And I think we really have to consider that. Mm -hmm.
0: I think one of the things as well, as as a reader who obviously knows UK society pretty well, um, but has so I'd say very limited knowledge of, of, uh, of Indian society. I mean, I've never, I've never visited um, the country is the sort of you, when you present how, for example, uh, women are considered and motherhood is, uh, is, is treated as a concept in India. I can recognize the differences, but also in a weird sort of way in seeing the differences, you recognize the parallels as well. And it's sort of, in sort of seeing a description of a society which is quite unfamiliar to you, it makes you realize that some of the sort of the, it makes some of the structures in your, in one's own society appear more apparent, I guess.
1: Yeah, I think there are, there are differences, but we are not, yes, we resist homogenization, but there are some universalities in these experiences as well. Mm -hmm. And I suppose we need to Drawn those universalities as well, that there are some universal experiences that, yes, this is not an alien country completely or that it's not a caricatured view of womanhood or motherhood that we often think about in India. And that is also a very diverse society. And, and I think... While writing that, I was also very conscious of whether I was reinforcing some of the stereotypes of Indian culture mm-hmm. and Indian society. And I recently wrote an article about why can't I write about mangoes? Because I was always reflecting on by writing about mangoes and about crowded streets and all the dust and dirt and all the kind of patriarchal constructs in India. Am I really reinforcing some of those views of India, those limited views of India that people who don't know the country Often because they only get it from the books. And am I doing Mm. that? But then I also had to think about whether this is the truth for me personally. And I'm writing Mm. my truth, but I'm trying to put it in a universal context as well that this is my specific experience, but it is my very, very specific experience of it, mm-hmm. there might be other diverse experiences even within that Indian society because it's so stratified in terms of socioeconomic status and and who has access to resources and who has access to opportunities in class and caste and all those kind of things mm-hmm. and education. So yes, I think um, we have to think about these stratifications. They, there are some commonalities across the Madhuri mm-hmm. experience, the guilt that we carry, the pressures that we carry, mm-hmm. the kind of The weight that we often carry, these feminine stereotypes about that women are supposed to be more nurturing, and so they should be the ones carrying most most of the maternal or the parental load. All those kind Mm -hmm. of stereotypes are kind of common. Some more accentuated in some societies and cultures than others, but still they're Mm -hmm. common.
0: Yeah, I guess it's that sort of. um, Yeah, it's interesting because when you describe the the commonalities, it's commonalities all sort of. You know, in a sense, it feels almost like commonalities enforced by the patriarchal structure yeah. in which in which women find themselves and it's sort of one thing that occurred to me on several occasions while reading motherhood was something which also has become more and more apparent uh since particularly for example the um the me too movement started is that sort of as men we have un- unless we make a specific effort to go out and re- really understand what it is like being a woman in our societies, we actually have very little knowledge. And it seems to be the sort of the detail. So one thing that you you, you spend some time with in the book is the, the pregnancy test. And just the idea of the kind of the design of the pregnancy test, which, you know, in a way, uh, if you you know, at first glance, they seem very clinical and you know one might sort of say quite neutral in a sense but just reading you kind of unpack the the history of both its kind of development uh of the you know the technology underlying it but also the the design the way it's packaged the way uh it it can or can't be disposed of suddenly sort of opens up all these considerations which I th- I think yeah as as a as, as you know as a man living in a patriarchal society are just not going to <laughs> occur to you unless you you go out looking for them.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I suppose if uh, for women I'm, I talk about these because a lot of these designs have been based in men, designed by men. Men have had the power or the resources mm. to do that, and now we're talking about, for instance. I don't do that discuss that much in the book but I I've been writing something about femtech and about how technology uh, all these apps are also designed by men and then there was a mm. separate category Designed. I mean, so there were not many women investors. They were men were awkward around women's um, uh, needs and bodies. So there are stories of people who would pitch these apps around pregnancy and periods and menopause, and people a group of men would laugh at them and say, "Why was this needed?" And they wouldn't understand it. And and I think that is why we need more women or or people of different backgrounds and different identities to be involved in the design of these things. Because unless we do that, how do we understand people's specific needs around these, mm-hmm. these things? And I, I call that kind of technological sleepwalking because we we just kind of sleepwalk through these designs, assuming that they fit everybody's needs. And mm-hmm. because it's not a priority, because women are still that kind of secondary and they're not the norm, their needs are not given priority. So we know within femtech, even there's so much focus on pregnancy and period app because still that's a big capitalist industry about women's Mm -hmm. fertility but any much there's not been much investment made in menopause-based apps, even though Mm -hmm. women of a certain age have more spending power and menopause is a huge huge issue for women so so we still see that it's certain aspects of women's bodies are are sexy, so pregnancy mm-hmm. and fertility because it is big industry and with megabucks, but certain, certain things are not. So still we are not seeing designs based on that. And I talk about the pregnancy uh, test because w- when it's disposed of, it so makes the person so vulnerable. And I talk about mm-hmm. women who might be in abusive situations where we need to hide it. There's no way they can do that because immediately they are so vulnerable about about. And so exposed, and that's why mm-hmm. there's some development happening in kind of disposable as pregnancy tests, but not much. I think we we mm-hmm. really need to bring in more diverse people in, into design and and focus more on needs for specific groups as well and for women mm.
0: and and in addition to the sort of the, the the sort of i guess the the lack of consideration in the design of technology. It's, there are also certain things which you write about, which is sort of certain concepts, which in a way we, uh, I think the society has taken on as, a, as almost sort of, uh, neutral concepts. I'm thinking specifically of the, the idea of the, the body clock, which you write about, um, which is sort of presented as almost a sort of a, um, a sort of a biological, uh, fact. Um, and now, you know, Clearly, there is a sort of uh, a scientific uh, backing to that, to the extent that you know the um, you know the, the women do not remain fertile all yeah. their lives. The menopause, of course, is a reality, but the way in which the body clock, I guess, was kind of instrumentalized um, and sort of and even even the way the way it's named and the way it's kind of deployed um, against women and particularly women. Uh, one might say you know pr- professional women or women who sort of yeah. want to concentrate on their careers it's yeah it, it, it's it's really striking uh how you kind of unpack that as a kind of a almost as a sort of phenomenon for stopping women getting to um yeah, taking too much place in in let say the capitalist structure or on company boards or the like
1: absolutely and it's used as a as a form of discrimination because we know that motherhood bias or penalty starts even before a woman expresses any intent to become a mother, because there's always this perception that a woman's body clock, which is this mythical mythological thing that was just created in in the uh, mid 1900s um, to, to represent something. It's not a scientific terminology and that, Mm -hmm. that the woman's body clock clock will be running out, that she'll be susceptible, that hormones will kick in, that her, Maternal need or instinct will kick in, and that a woman will always prioritize having children over their career. And mm. so we know that even like women in kitchens or women in science and women in STEM or women in academia are are discriminated because of that, because they are always perceived to be not as committed to their careers as children. But on the other mm. hand, and and yes, there is a lot of scientific myths around it. We never we know that newspapers or media kind of create this panic by cherry picking some of the scientific data by saying women are becoming geriatric at 35 and after that is just downhill. All all Mm -hmm. women are not built on a template. So we need more information about what's really happening. Again, we come back to that question. We need to know more about what's happening with our bodies. Mm -hmm. We don't, even when I Google this, there's all these different kinds of information and there's millions of scientific paper, but nothing just really tells me What is happening with my body right now? Mm -hmm. How do I find out? What should I look at? And I talk about in my book and through my journey, I know I was told that AMH is the criteria that's used for how many eggs you've got left. But now scientific studies are showing that actually it's not. It's not even that kind of deterministic criteria. So that is also false information that Mm -hmm. I was given or misleading to many women, Um. And we also don't talk about male body clocks or men, what's happening with their bodies. We we assume that men are going to be fertile all their lives and that it's not going to affect their bodies. So, again, it creates that kind of very gender divide in our society Mm -hmm. where the focus is so much on women's fertility. Um, But at the same time, if women choose career and not the children, they're breaking out of these feminine stereotypes. So they're penalized and stigmatized again Uh as well. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: And 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 that's it, isn't it? There's a moment where, um, you I think it, I think it might be towards the end of the book. Uh, my notes are out of order now, but uh, when you say this is a book about the choices women have or don't have, mm. uh, you know, and are we really free to make decisions? And that and that seemed to be something like whether it's a question of, uh, when to have children, or whether it's a question about, for example, if uh, if 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 to have an abortion or not. It's sort of even though, let's say, in, in countries like in France and in the UK, we live in societies where women legally, on paper, have the choice, it's clear from, from what you've just said and from, from what you write in the book that sort of, in a sense, how if, if a choice isn't an informed choice, how much of a choice is it really? And there seem to be forces at work, uh, patriarchal forces at work, sort of, which seem almost designed to to limit the the amount of informed choice uh, women can have.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, we, the, how much choice we have, but also, are we internalizing some of the messages that society is giving up mm. us and believing that this this is the cho- right choice to make? How do we decide what's the right choice to make? Are we really? And I, I think. The book in its previous format, actually version, was called Free Will because I wanted to examine this notion of free will about whether we really have Mm -hmm. free will, whether we are really autonomous or whether we are really agentic and whether we are told that this is the right choice and we start believing it and we decide that this is the choice I'm making. And I feel like I'm making the right choice because I think it is the right choice, but it is a message that I'm getting from society from early childhood. So these are some of the things we need to unravel, I think
0: that that's fascinating to um to think that in an earlier incarnation it was it's sort of a, it, the title was, it was free will it's sort of i suppose it brings me to the 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 last thing i, I want to ask and i i could talk about this book for with you for hours unfortunately <laughs> you know we don't we don't have hours and hours but um it's that question of i guess uh the book itself um and one of the reasons i thought it was um I was particularly interested to, to to do this podcast and I think particularly interested uh, to speak to you myself about it is that I did wonder how much this book would fall into the hands of men as readers. Um, and this is something, you know, you mentioned earlier about sort of, you know, publishing having uh, difficulties with sort of um, the way with the way it publishes writers of color and which stories uh, it publishes from, from writers of color. Um, and yeah, I, I'm curious to know what, what you think about sort of how, or well, maybe you already have some, some information about this, like, like how we we can get this book into the hands of more men, because it, it it's not sort of, you know, it it's not a book just for women in, 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 in I'm not sure any book is just for women, actually, to be honest. But I think, you in, know, in in many ways, while, while reading it, I sort of thought it's almost more important that men read this book than than women. And yet there's something I did also have my reservations about the way that publishing works, the way that bookselling works, and we you know, we all have our responsibilities in that. Um about sort of the yeah, the book finding its way to 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 male readers and I'm just curious to know yeah if you've if you've reflected on that and if they're sort of perhaps strategized uh, as a way to sort of to to get it to 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 all of the readers that that it would benefit
1: yes I I, it's such an important point and I've reflected on it quite a lot and I, I try to ask people about who's reading it and yes more women are engaged with it because I, I suppose the way that publishing or the, these genres are created and these labels are created about women's fiction or women's nonfiction or women's self or whatever women's issues, it makes it it makes it almost as if like men shouldn't be interested in it. And these mm-hmm. are very limiting boxes because when men write nonfiction, it's for everybody. It's not sure. just for men. Um, everybody can pick it up. It's not like men's gen- bodies or men's issues or whatever. Yes, more men might read it, but women would read it as well. And I think it starts from a very young age where because there was a research done that very few boys pick up books for children mm-hmm. which have a female or girl protagonist. Because from mm-hmm. a very young age, it is laid out that that boys shouldn't be interested in girl heroes or girl as the main protagonist. And I suppose it's a responsibility of how we market it, how we talk about it. But it's broader societal change about how men should be interested in women's bodies, women should be interested in these issues. And motherhood, especially, or womanhood is not just a women's issue because the Mm -hmm. problem, that maternal load, the problem of men women carrying so much of mental and emotional load in homes is because it becomes a women's issue. It becomes a Mm -hmm. women's problem. And we don't have shared parental load in many countries. We don't see... Men being equally involved in parenthood in a lot of families uh, is changing, but still it's not happening. And we saw that during the pandemic, it became very heightened. So I suppose it, we have to move away that it is just a women's issue and it's just a women's problem. And it has to be seen as a valuable thing that everybody has to be involved in and responsible for. And I think again, we come back to how this is taught, textbooks show men and women, how textbooks show boys and girls, what boys are taught about girls' bodies and girls' um, biology, and how we make sure that from a young age, boys are aware that it's not a secondary thing if it's a book which is labelled as a women's book Mm -hmm. or or has a girl protagonist. So I suppose it has to be a broader societal change. But within booksellers, I suppose we could think about the categories that we are we are labeling Mm -hmm. things under, the bookshelves that we are labeling things under, how we are grouping things. Often I find tables in bookstores, feminist issues, and they're just kind of an issue and lots of men don't even venture towards the feminist issue table because they think it's feminist issues, is something to do with women. While Mm -hmm. it is to do with our society, while it is to do with equality in our society, we should be everybody's concern. So I suppose how we market, how we promote, how we publish, it, how seriously we take writing from women as well. I think mm-hmm. that is important. Mm-hmm.
0: Pragya, that is all we've got time for. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you so much for 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 writing um, Motherhood. I can't wait to see um, what you turn your, your attention to um, next. Motherhood, of course, is available uh, from bookshops, worldwide, but uh, particularly from the Shakespeare and Company uh, website. You can find a link to it in the, uh, the show notes of this uh, podcast. So all that remains for me to say is, uh, Pragya well. thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much, Adam. Such a pleasure.
0: You have been listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. Links to the books discussed in this episode are available in the show notes, alongside information about how to become a friend of Shakespeare and Company. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider rating it wherever you listen. The intro and outro music is Mr. Ginger by the brilliant Alex Fryman, available on his album Play It Gentle. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care, stay safe, and thanks again for listening.